as I said in the first hour, it is a joy for me to be back anytime that I can here at uh, Countryside. It, it is quickly becoming a very, very uh, special place in my heart. Uh, every time that I have come, I don't know, maybe four or five times already uh, to this church, I am so immensely blessed. And so I, I take every opportunity to, to, to come here when I can and, and to be part of this. And in October of last year, I had the opportunity of bringing my wife as well, and she thoroughly enjoyed her time here. So grateful for what the Lord is doing here in, in countryside and uh, with uh, you know, Tom, a, a man whom I have respected for many years already, and even during our time in Russia, uh, invited him whenever I could to to get him to minister in Russia, and that was always such a, a blessing to us. So for me to see what the Lord is doing through him and through the other uh, elders here and in the church at large is such an incredible joy for me. So thank you for the invitation and, and uh, for all the, the many blessings that you extend to me just through fellowship together. Well, since the, the topic of the conference this weekend is on loving the local church, uh, the elders asked me if I would teach on two subjects related to that. The first hour, I looked at the ordinances and how the ordinances are expressions of Christ's love to us as well as our love to Christ, that both of the, the ordinances of, of baptism and Lord's Supper are designed by Christ to give us these tangible opportunities uh, to picture and reflect upon and meditate upon spiritual realities, and we need those as, as creatures in the material world. We need those things to assist us and to be regularly part of our life, especially when it comes to the, the Lord's Supper, and God in His grace has designed that wonderful means for us to do that through the ordained means of baptism, that initiation into the church, as well as through the Lord's Supper, which is that regular uh, memorial that we, uh, that we do, that we practice in order to reconsider uh, what the Lord has done for us on the cross. Well, another important element of, of ecclesiology, the, another important element of the doctrine of the church is obviously the, the leadership of the church. This too is something that Christ has ordained. In some ways, you could call this an ordinance because it is that which Christ has designed for His church. And in our day, in the same way that the regular ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are treated with a lot of superficiality in, in, our, in our Christian world today, uh, even with disdain by some because of the narcissism and individualism of the culture today, the same could be said about the Lord's institution of leadership in the church. And so it is appropriate for us at regular times in our lives to, to come back to this, whether you're involved in leadership as an elder or whether you're a member of the church, whether you're new to the church here, perhaps you're a visitor from another church, it is incumbent upon us to, to study the scriptures regularly with an eye to understanding how Christ's authority, the one who builds his church, how that authority is mediated in, in a practical way. And Christ's authority is mediated through the church in a special way through its elders. And so 
that's what we're going to look at this morning and understand how we can uphold God's design uh, for leadership in the church, for structure, for authority, as well as how can we honor that. Because uh, since Christ has ordained this, uh, it is our responsibility as his followers to love that which he loves, to honor that which he has instituted, and church leadership is definitely a part of that. For example, just one text that shows us how the authority of Christ has been instituted through the elders in the church. We're going to come back to a lot of, a lot of texts this morning in, a, in the hour ahead of us, but I want to begin with 1 Peter 5 verses 1 and 2 where the Apostle Peter, under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, is writing to various local churches scattered throughout modern-day Turkey, and he gives these words to the elders of those churches. 1 Peter 5, verse 1 begins with these words, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. It is a command that these men, called elders, were to obey. So let's focus now on this topic, and, and what I want to present to you is a summation. It's, it's, it's uh, difficult to do this in, in about an hour, when big books have been written on this topic. But I'm going to try my best to crystallize what would be the most salient points to, to summarize the, the different components of leadership in a straightforward, clear way, assuming and understanding that there are a lot of other details that go into this. It's going to raise a lot of questions in your mind that we simply can't answer during the hour we have. But it'll get you thinking along the right lines. And, and then from that, you can have further discussions uh, with the elders here, as well as your own study in the Scriptures to see how Scripture addresses these issue, issues. Well, to begin with, we have to think of the right terminology. The terminology that is used to describe uh, leadership in the church. And terminology is, is not arbitrary, Behind terminology, particularly in the New Testament related to leadership, these terms are important because they communicate ideas. And this is how we are to conceive of leadership in the church. So I want to begin by pointing to three important terms relating to the same essential group of people, but different terms emphasizing different aspects. And this is important because as you use these terms or as you look at your leadership, you need to understand them in this light, and doing so helps you with understanding God's plan. First of all, the term presbyter. The term presbyter comes from the Greek word presbyteros. Now, we don't use presbyter that often. Instead, the word for that would be elder. And the, the, the term presbyter, even though it is in our English language, uh, is a term that emphasizes maturity. It emphasizes uh, spiritual maturity. And so we call this term elder. In fact, different iterations of this word appearing in different forms will be used to describe older men. Not necessarily as having 
an office in the church, but just older men. The emphasis is on maturity, is on maturity, wisdom. And so we find this term in texts like Acts chapter 20, verse 17, where Paul calls the elders, it's translated as, technically the presbyters, but the elders from the Ephesian church to meet him in Miletus. We also find it earlier in Acts, in Acts chapter 11, verse 30, the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 14, verse 23, we'll come back to that text in particular. Paul appointed elders in the Galatian churches, and the term presbyters or elders is specifically used there. We read more of the elders of Jerusalem in Acts 15, verse 2. We see Paul refer to the elders in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. The term is also used in Titus 1, verse 5. But it's not just a Pauline term. We see it also used by James where he says, If any of you is sick, let him call upon the elders of the church. And then in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, we read that text already. The Apostle Peter uses the term elders to refer to leadership in the church presbyters. And the emphasis of that term, when we use that term elder, think of it this way. That term is to communicate something about maturity, and and especially character, a mature character, a character that is sanctified, that is wise, that shows the result, the, the progress of sanctification. That's what's behind the term elder. That's what an elder by his status is to communicate. Secondly, the second important term is the term overseer. Overseer. And that is the, from the Greek term episkopos, which literally has the idea of, of epi, which means among, and, and uh, skopos, scope, to, to see. So it has the idea of watching over from among is the idea. And this status, or this term emphasizes the status of of authority. It is one who is among, but has a responsibility that is over. To watch over is the idea. Paul uses that term in his his address to those Ephesian elders in Miletus. So he calls the elders, the presbyters from, from Ephesus, but he addresses them directly as overseers. Again, emphasizing their authority in the congregation. Philippians 1 verse 1 refers to it in the Philippian context where Paul addresses the entire church as well as calling out specifically the the overseers and the deacons. Two different groups. It's used in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2 to give uh, Timothy and, and a description of the qualities needed, and he, he, uh, Paul uses the term overseer there, the same thing as he addresses Titus in Titus 1 verse 7, and of course, we also see that used in 1 Peter 5 verse 1, emphasis there on authority. A third term, and one which we probably use the most, is the term pastor, poimen, is the Greek term behind that, and it comes through the Latin, the term pastor comes from the Latin translation of poimen, and this term is used in not as many cases as either presbyter or, or elder or overseer, but it is certainly a biblical context or concept referring to the office of overseer and elder. It's used in Acts 20 verse 28 once again in that, that address to the Ephesian elders. Uh, in Ephesians 4 verse 2, we have that term when Paul says that God gave some as 
apostles, some as prophets, New Testament prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. There's the term pastor. 1 Peter 5 verse 2. There the term is, is found in its, in its verb form to shepherd the flock of God. And that's the same root as the Greek word poimen, which means shepherd or pastor. And this particular term emphasizes function. When we see this term, and really when we use this term, we should be thinking of function, ministry, what pastors are to do. Now, what's interesting is the discussion sometimes is raised. Well, these are different groups within the church, and actually, no, according to the New Testament, they're not. So, for example, when, when Paul is in, in Miletus on the shores there uh, of that harbor, as he had called the, 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 the leaders from the Ephesian church to join him there in Miletus as he was on his way to Jerusalem, we find all three concepts related to the same group of individuals. And the same thing is in First Peter. You find all three root ideas, the terminology used in that very important statement of First Peter 5, verses 1 to 4, related to the leadership of the church. These are not three different offices. These all refer to the same office, but the different terms used are emphasizing different things. Either the character, or perhaps the authority, or perhaps the function. Now let's look for a moment at the structure. So we looked at the terminology when we, when we consider church leadership. What about the structure? How is it to, to look? What is the New Testament teaching on that? On the one hand, you have people today who will say the New Testament is either silent or ambiguous on this topic. And actually, no, there is most definitive proof for a certain approach, a certain structure of leadership. And it is this. We see it particularly with the Apostle Paul, his practice on his missionary journeys, the, the one whose practices are most described in narrative form for us in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, and also in his letters, being the most autobiographical of, of the writers of the New Testament, we find that it was his practice to establish this kind of structure in local churches. It was a plurality of elders for each local congregation. A plurality of elders, a plurality of, of overseers, pastors, elders, same group. A plurality for the same church. And, and what that practice emphasized was that local churches are to have a self-sufficiency, not in themselves for spiritual things, but a self-sufficiency in terms of local governance. And that governance was not to be placed in the hands of any one individual. It was by wisdom designed to be placed in the hands of a plurality, recognizing the possibility that one man can get it wrong, even in, with good intention. In His wisdom, God has designed that His church be expressions of local governance in the hands of a plurality of elders. Where do we find this? Well, first of all, on Paul's very first missionary journey, this is very important to note, this was not a theological development that happened as Paul developed as a theologian or as a missionary. Not at all. In fact, what we find on Paul's first missionary journey, although Paul had done evangelism before this time, but on his first missionary journey, in Acts chapter 14, 
the, the year would have been 8047, 8048, as Paul now is sent by the church in Antioch on the first deliberate missionary activity of planting churches, the first conscious deliberate activity that is local church-based comes from the church in Antioch, Acts 13, verses 1 to 3. Paul, Barnabas, and Mark are sent out. What is the practice in then reduplicating what was going on in Antioch in the Gentile lands, particularly in this case in modern-day Turkey, in the region of Galatia? The practice was to establish local congregations governed by a plurality of elders. Notice this. Paul says, or Luke records, when they, that is Paul and Barnabas, had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they, Paul and Barnabas, commended them to the Lord in whom they have believed. A very important expression here. First of all, notice this. They appointed elders plural, and then there's a very definitive Greek construction that indicates that the appointment of a plurality of elders happened in every congregation, in every church. Not a, they appointed elders for the churches, which could give the idea of, well, for however many churches, the same number of elders. No, for every individual church, they appointed elders plural. And notice also what Paul does here. There is a sense in which now, even though he remains an apostle having authority over the churches, he himself, what does he and Barnabas do? They commend these churches with their elders to the grace of the Lord. He's essentially turning over the governance now of these churches to the elders so that they would implement, implement apostolic teaching. Then, when we get to the, uh, near the end of Paul's ministry, on his fourth missionary journey, uh, uh, quite a few years later, almost 20 years later, Paul is doing the same thing. There has been no evolution in Paul's understanding of ecclesiastical structure. So the years would have been 8062 to 65, Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment, He's now active again in ministry travels in the Aegean Sea. And it turns out that he and Titus spent time on the island of Crete, different culture from Galatia, uh, on his first missionary journey. He's now on Crete. And Paul has to continue on to some other ministry opportunities. And he leaves Titus on the island of Crete and writes this letter to Titus. And he says this in verse, uh, this should be Titus chapter 1 verse 5, 1 verse 5 of Titus, there's a mistake there in the slides. Here is what it says, for this reason, Paul says, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains, so these weren't really fully functioning churches yet, and how was Titus to, to, to do this? Appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now notice again, elders according to city. Now in those days, Certainly, Paul wasn't planting, you know, First Baptist, Second Baptist, Third Baptist in the same city. In those days, there was just one church in every city. There weren't multiple ones. And so when Paul says elders in every city, the idea is elders for every church. Once again, same kind of construction, emphasizing that each congregation had a plurality of elders. And we see the same thing 
illustrated in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, where Paul calls the, the uh, leaders of the church singular of Ephesus to meet him in Miletus. We see it in Philippians when Paul addresses the church in Philippi along with the elders, plural, and deacons, plural. We see it in James 5, verse 14, when a man is sick, let him call the elders, plural, of the church, singular. So there is definitive evidence that Paul's understanding of how Christ builds his church is that he does so through the establishment of a plurality of elders in every local congregation. That's what sets in order what remains in the effort of church planting. Now that said, what about the qualifications now of these leaders? What are we to look for in identifying men who are fit for this office, whether you're, we're talking about the, the uh, maturity part of things, whether we're talking about the authority part of things, or we're talking about the ministry function side of things. What are we to look for? And the New Testament is unequivocal in its emphasis. Leaders of the church who would step into this office must be, not become, once they get into the office, but they must be men of highest moral standing. Men of highest moral standing. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7 summarizes this. Another important text is 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 25. Uh, you're familiar with Titus, chapter 1, 5 to 9, and we saw that as well in 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3, the moral qualifications. And what's interesting, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul begins his list of moral quality, qualities there with a construction that, that translates this way. It is necessary with respect to the overseer to be. Paul uses a very deliberate in, uh, construction there to emphasize necessity. This is not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's not something where, you know what, you're going to have a better ministry if you do it this way, no, Paul is saying it is necessary with respect to the overseer to be. And he says it is something that is already to mark the life of the man who would step into that office, not something that over time, once he's in the office, he can become. He must already be. According to 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, Titus 1 verse 6 and 7 the summary quality that is to describe church leadership can, can be, the summary quality can be expressed by these words, either the, the phrase blameless or, or the synonymous term above reproach. In both those lists, 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, and Titus chapter 1, 5 through 9, that Paul in both cases begins with the summary. He begins with the characteristic that then he goes on with other terms to define in more specific manners. And that term is to be blameless or above reproach. What does that mean? What does this summary quality mean? Well, it describes a person who is left untouched by accusations of failure, of moral failure. And that's not to say that accusations will never be made. If you look at the Apostle Paul, he was continually reviled by the world and by the Jews. 
In fact, in, in Corinthians, he, 2 Corinthians, he, he refers to himself as kind of the, 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 the reviled of the earth. That's how he was treated, particularly by his Jewish opponents, but also by Gentiles. Accusations were made of Paul regularly. It's not that accusations are never made, but this term blameless or above reproach means that when accusations are lodged, they slide off. They don't stick. That's the idea. It's like Teflon. You can put something on it and it will not stick. doesn't mean nothing will be put on it. No, so things will be put on it, but it will not stick. And Paul is saying that the men who have uh, this character, who are qualified, will have that kind of reputation. Accusations are going to be made. But when people look at those men, when people who know them look at their lives, look at their families, look at how they interact with people, they'll know, no, rumors exist, but when I see that person, those things do not stick. Now, it's important to note that the quality doesn't assume perfection. Paul is not saying, and this is very important, because there is the... There is the, the uh, tendency at times for churches to look upon their elders as having to be perfect. These terms do not communicate moral perfection. The idea that maybe the elder has arrived and, and that he's sinless. That, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul elsewhere himself in, in Philippians chapter 3 says, I have not yet arrived. And he was an apostle writing that letter some 20 years after his conversion, and he, all, and he even says then, I have not arrived, but I press on. John says in 1 John 1 that we are not to say we are without sin. But the issue here is, is that the elder has what we could say a relatively exemplary state of life. And what we mean by that is that in the context where he is in, his life is an illustration of the effects of sanctification. The grace of God has appeared teaching us to deny ungodliness. And so these men are living examples. They're proof of the effects of grace in the life. And in their context, they serve as blueprints for sanctification, as models, as examples so that those in the surrounding area look on them and say, wow, these are examples of how to live, how to progress on the path toward the celestial city. They are relatively exemplary models. That's how we are to look at them. They are to be above reproach in that way. One writer describes the term, uh, those terms this way. The term used in 1 Timothy 3.2, above reproach or blameless, implies that a man not only is of good report, but that he deserves it. The person aspiring to this responsibility must not be liable to the criticism that he otherwise would if he failed in any of the qualities listed below in verses 2 through 7. Literally, the word means not to be laid hold of. Hence, it means irreprehensible or unassailable. Now, why is that so important? I think Richard Baxter summarizes the importance of this quality well, speaking to the 
necessity to have one who is uh, a relatively ex- exemplary uh, in that particular context. When Baxter wrote this in his work, Reformed Pastor, he says, it is not likely that people will much regard the doctrine of such men when they see that they do not live as they preach. They will think that he doth not mean as he speaks if he doth not live as he speaks. They will hardly believe a man that seemeth not to believe himself. Very appropriate words, and that's what's behind these high moral qualities. And it is interesting to note that as we go through, whether it's 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 2 Timothy 2, all these different uh, sections or, or texts that describe the prerequisites for leadership, the predominant emphasis is on moral qualities. Not on intellectual, not on academic, but on moral status. But in addition to these moral qualities, there are others that Paul also lists that must be part of the makeup of a man who's qualified for leadership. It's not just that we look for those really good examples of sanctification and find them and say, well, you're now an elder. No, there's other things that relate to giftedness. For example, Paul regularly, and we find this in Hebrews 13.7 as well, But Paul regularly refers to the ability to teach, to give instruction in sound doctrine. So, whoever is going to be qualified for leadership, first and foremost, the primary foundational qualification is that they have the moral moral qualities necessary. But, in addition, secondary class, but still equally necessary, is that they have these abilities, these skills the ability to teach sound doctrine. Another ability that they must have is the ability to refute false teachers. And what that skill describes is that that skill of discernment, of the ability to recognize error and to confront error with truth. It's a little different than just teaching sound doctrine. In fact, you sometimes can have men who do a very good job at at, at, at communicating and can even take the the works of another or can, can take some, some good observations from Scripture and communicate those, and yet you'll find that they're not very good with discerning error. And it may not be any kind of slight on their character. They just lack that discernment ability. They don't see ideas and their consequences as they're worked out. But the man who would be fit for this office must be able to recognize the consequences of ideas and the roots of ideas and how these things fit together, and how they can be uh, a, a defamation of the truth. He must have the ability to refute. He must have the ability to manage or to govern. In numerous texts, we read of how these leaders lead, how they shepherd, how they uh, rule. For example, First uh, uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, uh, let me actually refer to 1 Thessalonians 5.12, that should be 1 Timothy 5.17, 1 Thessalonians 5.12 refers to those who rule and manage or steward. In 1 Timothy 5.17, it is a reference to those who rule well. 
Hebrews 13, verse 7, those who lead. So there's skill of management and governance. And then finally, the ability to care for people. It's not just that someone is intellectually capable, can discern, not just that he has good theology, not just that he has good stewardship skills, but this is critical, that he have the ability to shepherd. We see that in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. Paul says to Timothy, look at the man's management of his home. That's a skill. Because if he cannot manage his home well, and that management included all kinds of things, all of it around the idea of caring for everyone under the roof, if a man cannot manage his own home, how will he care for, is the verb that's used there, how will he care for the church? Paul is making the argument from the lesser to the greater. If you can't fulfill the, the lesser premise, you can't fulfill the greater premise. You have to have that ability to care for people. This requires a love for people, a love for souls, an ability to listen, a willingness to sacrifice. Those are skills. And very good people sometimes don't have those skills. But you want to look for those men who have that. And if they don't, they're not fit for eldership. It's kind of by way of summation here on this issue of, of, of qualities. If you just take the, the letter to, to, to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and look at the qualities that are listed there. You see Paul's, uh, Paul's mind here as he's superintended by the Holy Spirit. You find this fascinating way, and Paul goes back and forth between different kinds of qualities that he's looking for. And notice if we take all of those qualities that are listed there and we, we put them, uh, these 17 we put, or 14, we put them uh, into categories, we can see this. There's the summary quality, the man must be above reproach, but then we have that statement, the man must be above reproach, then illustrated in three different spheres. First of all, the sphere of domestic qualifications. Paul says, look at his domestic life. And in particular, his relationship to his wife and then to his children. Then he says, look at the man's personal qualifications, his own personal disciplines. How he lives his life even when no one else is around. How he manages his own life. What he sets as his priorities. He has to be temperate. In other words, he has to control his bodily appetites. He has to be prudent. In other words, he has to control his thoughts. He has to live a respectable life, a life that attracts honor not addicted to wine, free from the love of money, and not a new convert. What he's referring to there is he's not immature. And then you have the third, uh, the third category, the elder's relational qualifications. How does he relate to others? Others who are in need, is he hospitable? Others who are in need of instruction, he's able to teach. Others who disagree, he's not pugnacious, he's gentle and peaceable. And even the relationship to unbelievers, he has a good reputation. So Paul says to Timothy, look at the man, examine the candidate in all these, these ways, in these three categories, and see, is the man above reproach? But what is important when we look at these things is, again, this, these are things not, that, not, that don't necessarily describe some kind of uberman, some kind of specialized segment of the population. Really, a lot of these characteristics are just the fruit of sanctification. 
You're not looking for some hybrid human being. You're looking for someone who has the evidence, robust evidence, of sanctification taking place in his life. I like how Mark Dever has expressed this. He says this, quote, An elder is not a separate class of persons. It's not a separate kind of Christian, such as the difference between a commoner and nobility or difference between clergy and laity. Rather, the elder is of the same class. He's a member of the church. But he's an exemplary version of that class. One who can be held up as an example because he's above reproach and he can rightly divide the word. What that means is elder training consists of being an exemplary member. You want to be able to look out at the congregation and ask yourself, okay, who is living with integrity? Who is setting an example? Who do the people already turn to when they have tough life situations or Bible questions? Now, if your church is, a living, is living as a family, you'll be able to spot these men who are living that way. If your church is not living as a family, those men will be much more harder to detect. In short, our elders in our church are looking to affirm men who are already living and functioning as elders, the men who have grown into that status through the ordinary means of grace. When this happens, this is the evidence of a healthy church, that you have those elders who are recognized already as elders, who have these qualities already very visible in their lives, but you also have a category of others, all in different levels of other men, who are already functioning without the title, as elders. And what does that mean? It means because of the means of grace operating in their lives, they're men who read the word, study the word, listen to the word preached. They're men who pray. They're, they're men who engage in evangelism. They're men who engage in the ministry of one another's. They're, they're men who are part of the fellowship of the saints. They're not isolated. And they're, they're, they're growing in their sanctification, and as a result, they are already having an impact on those around us. Their reputation is magnetic. And you can see that happening. People like to be with them. Why? There's no scandal with them. There's no gossip and slander. There's no illicit discussion. There's talk about serious things. There's a manifest love for the Lord. There's a care for souls. A love for truth. And those men just attract others who want to be around, just listen, to just watch and observe. And as those people watch and observe, there's this lingering thought, I want to be like them. And that's what's present in a healthy church. You have those with whom that's taking place within a formal level. They have the title, and you have these other men who are doing that already just naturally. They don't even know that they're functioning as elders, and yet the Lord is using them that way. That's what you want to see. Now, with respect to function... What can we discern from the scriptures in terms of what these men are to do? And this in itself could take uh, at least an hour or two to survey in terms of responsibilities for your elders, for your pastors. In trying to summarize this in uh, just a few moments, uh, I like how Timothy Whitmer in his book, The Shepherd Leader, does this. He summarizes, he, he, he looks at the whole New Testament teaching on this, and he summarizes the function of elder, pastor, overseer, 
in, in this format. He says there are four essential functions of a pastor. Four essential functions, and they are these. The pastor, the group of pastors must, number one, know the flock. And that requires a very personalized love for people. It means being involved in people's lives. Not just kind of at a formal or professional level. That's, that's not how Paul at all views the church. But it's involvement in everyday life in some degree. That the pastors have a responsibility for this. It's knowing the people. And it also means that in a formal way. Who are the people that constitute this church? Hebrews 13 speaks of the elders as those who will give an account. So how and for whom do you give that account? And so it requires that the elders have a very concrete knowledge of who they must know. Secondly, it's feeding. A shepherd not only knows his own sheep, but he feeds. He feeds them. He ensures that they are brought to the green pastures and given the fresh, clean water that they need. And that's, that's an analogy for what real pastors do in that they must ensure as a top priority that those in the congregation are getting the best teaching possible. They're getting the full diet, the whole counsel of God. They're getting the pure water of the Word. And they're dedicated to that. They're dedicated to good doctrine. They, they, this also in, in, includes uh, in instruction for new believers as much as it is instruction for the elderly believers. It's feeding. It's leading Helping people make decisions when people struggle with applying biblical truth to very personal circumstances in today's life. A pastor, an elder, an overseer is to be responsible in guiding the people through decision-making in life, both in terms of bigger ideas. How do we relate, for example, to the whole COVID issue? How do we relate to a government that is growing in hostility toward the church how do we relate to this and that and this other issue? How do we relate to, to the, the transgender movement and so on? That the pastors and elders have a responsibility to help their people think through this and lead them through it. But it also relates to even more personalized uh, decision making. As, as young people ask, Who, uh, whom do I marry? Or they ask questions about, well, you know, what do I do with my life? I, I, am I to go into ministry? Or, or do I pursue this profession? And, and the, the pastors are involved in, in, in not dictating, but in leading. Not, not driving, but in, in, in showing the way and drawing along by the, by the inertia of their own example. It also includes protecting. Protecting the flock from error. Counting or, 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 or pointing out error. Marking it and saying to the people, avoid. It also means... Protecting the, the congregation against sin, it means doing the hard work, which is so very, very difficult of, of church discipline, of working with people behind the scenes in their sin and, and seeing whether they will perhaps repent when being confronted, and if they won't, taking it through the right process, and then eventually leading through those four stages that Jesus outlines in Matthew 18, and, and, and then removing them from the fellowship for the sake of the flock. It's protecting and in each of these areas, there is both a public and a private aspect, a public and a private dimension. Remember Acts chapter 20, verse 20, where Paul summarizes to the, Miletus, uh, to the elders in Miletus, the Ephesian elders, 
He calls upon them to remember how he did not shrink back from declaring everything to them that was profitable and teaching them, what, publicly and from house to house. There was both the macro ministry as well as the micro ministry, that the elders need to be involved in both. They, they need to be involved in that broad corporate level, especially when the saints are, are gathered together on the Lord's day and other events that bring the people of God together. But the elders and, and, and pastors, and overseers, that group of leaders need to also be involved individually in the lives of, of people from house to house. As Paul would go through the city of Ephesus and visit and as he'd help them deal with pains and, and trials in life and, and questions and needs for, for counsel and so on, and also with admonishment. Uh, those are the functions. What about now the dangers of church leadership? The dangers. What kind of things present particular snares for those in, in leadership? As with all forms of leadership, there is... Among us, as human beings, there is the definite danger of distortion. Distortion of the purpose and the nature of that delegated leadership. We know that all authority is, is from God. It has been delegated to different institutions in, in human society. Whether that is the government, whether that is the family, or whether that is the church. There is authority that has been delegated by God. All levels of authority has been, have been instituted by Him. But each one of those, as we all know, in the government, as much as in the home, as much as in the church, all levels of, of authority can be severely distorted. And Paul recognizes this for the church as well. And it is a, it is a danger. And we as leaders in the church must regularly remind each other and ourselves of these potential snares. And you as a congregation must also pray for your elders and talk with them about these potential dangers as well. Now one distinct danger is moral disqualification. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment in dealing with the accountability that pastors have to their people but another danger here that I will mention now is that of skewed motivation. That just because a man steps into the office of overseer doesn't protect him. Even if, even if he is chosen according to the right standards, it does not protect him from the temptations that will come to him. And this is serious. This is why prayer and the support of the people of God for their, their elders is so very, very important and a, and a key text here on these skewed motivations is actually from the Apostle Peter. And it should be 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 to 3. 1 Peter 5, verse 2 to 3. Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Notice now the first danger. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Not... And here's the first danger, motivated by the fear of man. Leadership can easily be distorted by the wrong kind of fear. And that fear of man can bind a man to uh, 
to certain leadership forms and, and way of making decisions that show that he is not leading from a principalized position. He's not leading voluntarily according to the will of God, but he is leading in order to please people. He is pandering to others. Maybe it's, he's pandering to parents, and so he goes into ministry because, well, dad was a pastor, so I have to be a pastor too, and so he's doing so under compulsion. Or he's leading in such a way as to please a particular segment in the church. All different kinds of ways that this can be distorted, but the first one is motivated by the fear of man rather than by the will of God. The second one is then stated a little bit later, just, well, right after that, the Apostle Peter says, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Here the motivation is by the things of this world, love of money. Leadership can take on that form. Peter even recognizes that in his own day when it wasn't a, a, such an established practice back then of, of pastors getting paid with benefits and retirement plans and things like that. None of that existed. They would get paid, but it looked very different. In our day, there's a whole lot that can be added to that. So if in Peter's day, there was the danger of leading for sordid gain, how much more in our day, and this is a potential distortion, when monetary issues, material issues, begin to influence a man's leadership. Rather, it is to be with eagerness. In other words, you're motivated to do what you do as a leader, not because of the, the, the monetary result, not because of some kind of physical benefit that you get, but you're eager to do it primarily because it is the best thing to do. You're motivated by the beauty of it, not by what you're going to be able to afford after it. And then thirdly, another danger here is the pride of life, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples. The pride of life can easily take over when you become intoxicated with the level of authority that you have. This is a distinct danger, and what Peter does here is he lists these three dangers that, that he recognizes as each being a potential snare for the elders of the local churches scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. And he specifically says, you are to shepherd, you are to fulfill your task, but watch out for these dangers. Now, what accountability is there between the one in leadership with those whom he leads? There is accountability. And again, these dangers create the real reason for concern and and it certainly should be something that you're always praying for, something that you're sensitive to is that, you know, even the best of men are still just men at best. Uh, they're not glorified. And they face, as those in authority, they face these snares. So what do we do when there is a, a failure, a moral failure? or a ministry function failure. There is no guarantee that a man rightly chosen for the right standard will remain that way. And there's no guarantee that even what we see on the outside as a man is selected for ministry is actually the real deal. There is, as we all know, the possibility for deception. So what do we do? The Apostle Paul provides a 
process for handling elders who become reproachable. Now, we can certainly talk about how the elders themselves are to hold each other to account, and in a healthy church, it'll be the elders themselves who will, who will take care of this. But Paul, when he addresses this, writes to Timothy and provides the entire church through Timothy with instructions about how to handle an elder who has become disqualified for ministry. And the, the text is, is given to us in 1 Timothy 5, 19-22. Let me read it because it is helpful uh, to understand that Paul did not leave the church without a process. He says this, to, in, in beginning in verse 19, after he has dealt with different segments of the church and how to deal with sin issues in other segments of the church, he gets to chapter 5, verse 19, starts a new paragraph that carries on actually all the way to the end of, of the chapter. But he says this beginning in verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing out of a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Now, there's a process here. There's principles that the Apostle Paul gives for dealing with elders who have become reproachable. The first one is this. To protect the dignity of the office, accusations cannot just be lodged just willy-nilly. Instead, to protect the dignity of the office, Paul does say that accusations are to be considered only with respectable evidence. Notice what he says in verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And, and Paul is recognizing, even in his own life, he was accused all the time from individuals of improprieties. What he says here is that for an accusation to, to be considered, there has to be evidence. There has to be serious evidence, respectable evidence, and, and that is handled in that typical common phrase established all the way back in Mosaic Law that when there was to be some kind of discipline, it always had to be based on two or three witnesses. In fact, we see that with Jesus' own process for church discipline, Matthew 18, right? That the church is to get involved only after sufficient level of evidence and witnesses have been included in the process. In other words, the church doesn't go from step one to step four just like that. Somebody says, my brother sinned, the church says, okay, next week we're having an elders meeting, we'll deal with it. You know, there's to be a process of investigation. There is to be a, a process that is respectable and that is objective, that others can look at and say, yes, that was done the right way. These are the visible processes, the steps that were taken. This is the evidence. These are the witnesses. To protect the dignity of the office, there is to be a respectable process for the lodging of concerns. But notice, as Paul says this, he is assuming that that evidence will be there in, in certain cases, and it must, be, it must be lodged. Number two, if the nature and pattern of the elder's sin is serious, he is to be publicly dis disciplined for the benefit of the church. So if the elder is caught in a trespass that is serious, 
if he's caught in a trespass that is a pattern of sin, he is to be publicly rebuked. And in, in, inherent in this is that the man is no longer then publicly above reproach. The implication is he's removed from ministry. It's a public rebuke. And Paul understood the need for this. Now, again, Paul is not saying that an elder's got to be perfect, and if, and if he ever sins, he's automatically disqualified. No, he calls upon them, particularly in this sense, he calls upon the church to take action with those who continue in sin. The idea is, this is an egregious sin, and it's a, it's a pattern. And in that case, there must be a public response. There must be a public attestation, a public witnessing that the man who once, if you go back to chapter 3, who is affirmed as being above reproach and then commissioned for ministry is now formally having that removed from him. He is being disciplined publicly. Number three, we also see in verse 21 a particular warning from Paul about the potential for partiality. Notice what he says in verse 21. He says, I solemnly charge you. And Paul uses that language whenever he is really drawing an emphatic statement. It's like he's got this underlined and in, in, in red font, you know, in his, in his letter to Timothy, he's saying, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these things without bias, doing nothing from partiality. In other words, this is not to be something where either, if there's one elder who just happens to be not the, you know, the most popular guy that you start to, you know, create some kind of, of, of personal, personally motivated attacks and attempts on the man. There's to be no partiality here. And reverse is true as well. Just because the man is an elder, well-connected, doesn't mean you are lenient on him. There's to be no partiality, Paul says. For the dignity of the office and the objectivity of truth and the holiness of God, who himself is not partial, there is to be no partiality in dealing with elders' sins. And then number four, restoration, if it is a possibility, is not to be done quickly. Notice the ending of that particular set of instructions. He says, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourselves free from sin. Now, some take that to be a reference just to ordination. The issue is this comes in the context of dealing with an elder's sin. In fact, it's even in the, the sentence itself. Do not do it hastily and therefore share in the sin. This is not just normal ordination. What this is referring to is a restoration to the office of overseer. And Paul says, you know what? If you've got to the point where a man is removed and there is a possibility for restoration, do not do this fast. Take lots of time because a quick restoration can involve the rest of the sins, can involve the rest of the elders as being complicit in their sin. Well, that's a summary. We could get into a lot of details on that yet, but now we have to turn to kind of a final element that really relates to the church at large in terms of, okay, what do I do with all this? What do I do with this uh, material? I want to give you some closing exhortations, uh, especially... Uh, knowing what you have here, such a precious church with such a wonderful witness. 
Uh, we're, we're always hearing in California of people who have visited here and who would love to come back and move here. And we try to say, oh, hold on a little bit. We, we need you here. Um, but if you have to go, uh, you, you, this, is, this is a great place to be. You, 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 the Lord has done wonderful work here. So in light of that, how can you as a congregation steward what you have? Let me give you some final exhortations here. Number one, esteem your elders. Esteem them. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13 says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate, you value, you hold in high regard those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. And that's a reference to you know, the difference between the elders formally recognized and, and others live at peace. Paul is calling upon the Thessalonians here to have a special love for elders. And I can say this both out of, out of knowing, in my case as an elder in, in my local church, of, you know, the things that I go through and the things that I'm so grateful for. And it's this, that even as an elder, as, as one who is, uh, has been recognized and has these, one has, who has these formal responsibilities, that there still is, is that, that, that desire for encouragement. And it's not because I want to be a, a, a fear of man and that I don't know what to do and so I'm going to base it upon what gets the best applause. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. But we're all human beings. We're limited. Sometimes we just don't know whether what we're doing is having an impact in someone's life, whether we're connecting, we're communicating clearly, we're, we're, we're drawing the, the right applications from the text and and as Paul says, you know, esteem your elders, appreciate them. And, and you know, the best kinds of appreciation have nothing to do with the, the monetary or any kind of thing like that. It, it just has to do with simple words, pastor, I love you. Uh, pastor, I'm, I'm thankful for what you do. I, I know you stay up late and you, 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 I know you get up early and I know you have a, a thousand things that are going on and everybody's trying to pull you in a different direction and you're trying to gently work through all of that, and, and I appreciate you for that. You know, the churches that are strongest that stand against the threats of the evil one and threats from the culture will always be those churches where the people love their pastors. And that's one of the things that I'm so grateful for at Grace Community Church is that it's, it, it, it's, it doesn't go very long in the week before somebody just expresses that. A little email, a little text, and it just makes my week. And it's not because, again, it's not because I'm living for the applause of men, but it just, it, it shows us that, that you know what, there's, there is, there's another side here, and it's personal, and it's, it's not just me doing stuff and people come and go, but there's a relationship. Esteem your elders. Number two, submit to your elders. And this is difficult, and, I, and perhaps they asked me to do this one because I'm not an elder here, so it's easier for me to say submit, right? But I, I don't want to say that on the basis of just, well, that's what us guys want. No, it's scriptural. 1 Corinthians 16, 15 to 16, Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of, of Achaia, and 
that they have devoted themselves for ministry for the saints, that you be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Now, what we gather from this, Paul also makes reference to this household in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, but what we gather from this was that the household of Stephanus, Stephanus and other men in his household were some of the first converts, and they were recognized as leaders, leaders in the church, elders, pastors, overseers. And so as Paul wraps up his letter to the Corinthians, he says, you know what, be in subjection to such men. He tells the Corinthians, listen, that will be for your good. Your subjection to your elders will be a means of grace. God will bless you through that. It's repeated as well in Hebrews 13 verse 17. Both of the standard terms are used here for that. The writer of Hebrews says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable to you. The writer of Hebrews is saying, listen... You know what? You might think it's easier to rebel. You know, that's just the default position of the flesh, to live without any leaders, anarchy. That's what we're prone to in our flesh. And you might think that's, that's best for you. You're not ruled by anyone. You make your own decisions. You determine your own path, etc. And the, the myth that is presented in that kind of thinking is that your life will be more enjoyable and you'll prosper. And the answer is that is the exact opposite of the truth. It will be unprofitable for you to do that. God has designed authority when it is rightly exercised. It is authority that is to be obeyed. It is to be submitted to. And in this, you, you make it easier for those who have to stand in a place you'll never stand. There is a special responsibility and a judgment for the leaders and you can think of it this way, and, and, and I hope I'm not, you know, creating too much speculation here, but in a very real sense, that on the day of Christ, when the church is, is raptured to be with Christ, and, and there will be a distribution of rewards, there's going to be a special meeting. And, and all of the, those who are called elders will have to give an account for things that the members of the church will not have to give an account for. And, and there will be rewards given or not given based on what is done there. And, and you can be thankful that that will not f fall on your shoulders. For James chapter 3, verse 1, just as an example, says, let not many of you become teachers because theirs is the stricter judgment. They will be judged for how they use their tongues in ways that the rest of the church will not be. Very serious. There's more that we could go into that. First Peter also speaks of that. Uh, you know, we, we are to be held to a high account. We will give a response for this. And that's extremely sobering. So in your effort by submission to good leaders, you will make their life easier. And as you do that, you will experience joy. Because in that situation, then authority is being handled the way it's supposed to be. It will do its work as Christ's authority is mediated through his church. Number three, imitate your elders. Imitate them. Hebrews 13, verse 7, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. The purpose of leadership is not just to, you know, for somebody to, do, to, to take care of certain things so that the rest of the people don't have to. As I said earlier on, that there's a very real 
sense in which elders are, are, are just like everyone else except they're a little bit further along the path of sanctification. They manifest what the grace of God does in a person's life. And so your response to that as, as you uh, affirm and follow those who are seen as, as leaders, recognized as, as elders, pastors, overseers, that your responsibility is to, to look at their lives to see how they handle their wives, how they handle their children, how they keep up their homes, uh, how they conduct themselves in the world, how they conduct themselves in personal relationships, to observe them carefully, to watch them, just to observe, and then to go home and say, okay, what did that elder do in this situation? I'm going to do that. And that's how discipleship and imitation is, is passed on from from the more mature to the less mature, the, those who are farther along and those who are newer in the faith. Finally, number four, care for your elders. This is kind of that material part, and this is part of Scripture as well. Care for your elders. Galatians 6 verse 6 says, The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17 to 18 expresses the same idea. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, and a quote from Deuteronomy here, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And then a quote from the Gospel of Luke, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Um, there is sometimes an, an, an anticipation or an expectation that, well, spiritual work is to be done without any kind of compensation. It's almost as if, you know, compensation would somehow sully the spiritual nature of the work. That's not what the New Testament teaches. That what is best for the church is when the elders can focus wholeheartedly on the work of the ministry. It will be for your best. But for that to happen means that they have to pay bills too and put food on the table and, and, and uh, clothe their children and be able to drive and things like that. And so your responsibility before the Lord with respect to these elders is to care for them in practical ways. Well, those are the, that's the summary. And uh, hopefully that will get you at least thinking much more about this and studying the scriptures, searching them to see what, what is God's plan for leadership and, and how can I fit into that and how can I be faithful to that. But as you think about that, I'd like to close in prayer and, and, and ask that the Lord would continue to protect this church, grow it, bless it with wonderful elders who love the people who are above reproach and a wonderful church that loves their elders and there's wonderful fellowship and relationship between them. Father, your plans are always all wise. And there is never something that you have not anticipated. There is never something that you have overlooked or failed to plan for. But rather, these ordinances, these instructions come from an all-wise God who knows what he's doing and knows how to build the church. And when we think of the leadership that you have instituted to manifest, to mediate the authority of Christ and his word in the lives of the local 
body, we're reminded of how both that can be a great blessing and how that can also be quickly destroyed. I pray for this church. I pray your hand of blessing would be upon the elders here. That they would give their attention wholeheartedly as they have in the past to personal examination and the high standards of this office. There would be no partiality, but rather there would be objectivity, transparency, and consistency. That they would take seriously all these moral qualifications as well as all these skill qualifications. I also pray that you would work in this congregation to give them a, a great love for the leaders that you give to them. I pray that where there may be, uh, may be un, unsound relationships or strained relationships, that you would put it on the hearts of the people here to pursue peace, to live at peace, as Paul said to the Thessalonians with the elders. And I pray you'd protect this church in its unity, in its witness, in its teaching, in its love. And I pray that from among their midst, you would raise up even more for a world in desperate need of true pastors. Use this congregation as an incubator for many, many men to go out and bring your blessings to the world in such need. Father, we approach these things with seriousness because we realize they're so rare and they're so special. Bless this work, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.